We're always arguing that companies are people. Well, these people have crossed the line. To hell with them! Even here in Hartford, the idea of a white woman even speaking to a colored man. Oh, please just say free the Negro rights! You know what that woman is capable of! Like, I think it's slowly opening up now, people's minds, like, um, educating and, and AIDS and, um, and other types of diseases, because, because, and it is a disease, because it's out there, and we just have to be more aware of it. Because I just take everything, and I don't know anything, and I don't know what I want, and how could I when all I ever do is say yes to everything? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 199 of the Directors Club podcast. I'm your host, Jim Laskowski, and with me today is one of the smartest people I have ever met in my entire life, creator of the Mental Filmness Film Festival, and not only is she a librarian, she's currently in law school. She's going to go on to do great things. Welcome back, the one and only Sharon Gissy. Gissy. I knew that. I know that's that's still a tough one. <laughs> I don't know why Thank when you. I see a G, I always feel like saying G, J, but not G. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people. It's a it's a very unique name. Let's just say I don't. What's, what, what's what, yeah. are, what are the origins? <laughs> I I believe it's French, and it actually oh. came from some kind of town uh, one of my ancestors lived in. Um. But yeah, you're, I don't think I've met a Gissy ever that wasn't related to me. It's a very unique name. <laughs> yeah. There are a lot of Laskowskis. I'm surprised. Yeah. You know, strangely enough, um, I remember when I did that whole uh, Wilco tribute to help Chicago music venues. And when Jeff Tweedy talked about it on his show, he mentioned that um you know my my last name and uh like his son went is is he related to bob laskowski their next door neighbors are laskowski it's spelled differently it's l-a-s-k-o-w-s-k-i it's just so strange (laughs) because i don't normally hear that last name battered around as often but that was that was a trip that whole experience was weird uh you know speaking of weird uh, even though this is episode 199 of the podcast, technically this is the 300th episode because I've also done 101 bonus episodes. So you are here for the technically officially the 300th episode of the podcast. And it's quite an honor. Wow. That, that's really exciting. Yeah. Congratulations. That's a long running podcast. Uh, yeah. There are podcasts who do this every week and have like a thousand episodes or whatever, but still. Uh, 11 years, 300 episodes, and uh, I decided that I wanted to go back because we actually covered Todd Haynes, geez, Louise, uh, a decade ago, I want to say, for episode five. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it was a short and sweet and succinct show where we didn't, we hadn't found our footing yet. We were just like, it was more rambly. I mean, obviously, I still ramble, but still. Uh, this was around the time that I'm not there came out, but we did talk about safe. We did talk about far from heaven, but not to the extent that I think we're going to today. And I'm not sure back then I would even consider him a favorite of mine, mm-hmm. but now I kind of do. Well, that's, that's kind of interesting too, because I mean, 
I, I've seen most of these movies, I had realized, but maybe like not quite that long, but almost 20 years ago. And I had very, very different thoughts about them watching them now. So, oh, yeah, um, we grow. Yeah. You know, and we change. And the way we view something is very different than, than when we first viewed it. And I think that's always why, like, reassessing or certainly when I do that ridiculous retrospective thing I do, we go back 30 years and look at movies that are playing very differently now <laughs> than they did yeah. back then, which was, uh, yeah, that was the last episode. And yep, it just about cracked seven hours, which I can't believe I do that. It's an insane event. Wow. But uh, no, I think um, it's, it's, it's similar to when I watched a bunch of Jane Campion movies I kind of went, wow, I'm kind of amazed. But even more so now with Todd Haynes, I think he's up there in my top five favorite directors. You know, I I don't have a whole lot of critiques <laughs> on, on, on a lot of his work. Maybe you do. Uh, I certainly don't love, unabashedly love everything he's done. I just think he's an incredibly fascinating talent. And we're going to talk about that and, all, and so much more, I'm sure. Uh, not every title will be covered. Uh, we're going to cover as much as we possibly can, but uh, we're omitting the Mildred Pierce miniseries, which I did see. I don't have a very vivid memory of, but I remember loving it. <laughs> I just need to revisit it again. And I think you can. It's on HBO Max if you're curious. Mm -hmm. um, I did see his latest documentary on the Velvet Underground uh, last year, and I really, really enjoyed that as well. Not 100%, but still at the same time, I think people should check that out. And he also did a really interesting adaptation of a young adult story called Wonderstruck. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think Julianne Moore has a small part in that, if memory serves, along with Michelle Williams. And um, the deaf girl from A Quiet Place. I can't remember her name, but she's in that as well. And it was okay. I remember thinking, like, uh, it's not high on my list of favorite Todd Haynes movies, but it was okay. Uh, but yeah, we're going to talk about a lot of fun stuff still to come. So I hope you're excited. Are you excited, Sharon? I hope you are. Yes, I am. Uh, you know, I didn't get, there were a few I didn't get around to. Uh, the ones I really visited, the handful were really, I actually watched most of them several times, um, partially just because I really enjoyed them so much. But yeah, the I, I'm familiar with the book Wonderstruck. I did not see that. And I haven't really seen, I guess, the group of his uh, quote unquote kind of music stuff. So that's, <laughs> yeah, I missed that. I think we talked about how if you're not a big Bob Dylan fan, I don't know if you can fully connect with I'm not there, <laughs> yeah. you know? So that's why I was like, yeah, if you, if you want to skip it, you can. And plus, <laughs> uh, I, I rewatched it and I still feel very similarly to when I saw it the first time. We'll get to that. But since I have you here, what we watched recently. <laughs> Instead of just like reviewing a new release on this show for the segment that I call What We Watched Recently. Uh, I'd be curious to talk to you a little bit about what you feel are some of the better portrayals of mental health in film, to the best of your memory, because 
obviously you created the Mental Filmness Film Festival. Mm-hmm. Uh, share the good news about that, by the way, because I think that's incredible and an incredible <laughs> achievement. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, it's it's still it's kind of a small festival, but the last couple of years, uh, we've still done it virtually through the Eventive platform. And um, I just uh, applied for and was approved for nonprofit uh, tax exempt status. So Yay! I've been wanting to grow it. Yeah. So I'm going to try to go through, uh, see if I can kind of build possibly some, some partnerships and... Um, and grants through that because that could be an avenue uh, to pursue. Because what I really think we need to do more is kind of like build more partnerships in the in the mental health community. I but agree. Yeah, the uh, I, and I'd like to reach a wider audience. But we have gotten some amazing uh, films. Uh, some pretty yeah. Uh, I've been very happy, really, with uh, you should be. with the lineups. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, certainly the first year when I attended, uh, what was the name of that venue? Oh, Comfort Station. Yeah, yeah Comfort the first Station. year was that Comfort was wonderful. Station. Yeah, yeah, we had a good turnout, especially for a first film festival. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that was that was that was a delight. I, I I really enjoyed seeing the films, and you got to talk to a couple of the filmmakers there. And then since then, well, due to this crazy pandemic we've had going on, it's it's gone virtual, but it's been highly successful with every passing year. Yeah, it's gotten more uh, more and more of an audience every year. So um, I, I think there were most, I mean, uh, I think it was close to 100 viewers last year. That's so great. it was great that we could expand, I, I think, our reach with the virtual festival and then people who were friends and family of the filmmakers. I think those were a lot of them, but they were able to, (laughs) you know, uh, watch their, their relatives films in this festival. So that was really cool. It's something they wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. Yeah. It's really special people. I hope that, um, I mean, I'm going to plug it obviously in the podcast and include links and hopefully people can attend. And certainly if there are, if there's anybody listening out there in the mental health field, feel free to contact me at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com and maybe we can, uh, yeah, work on some partnerships like you're talking about. Because uh, it's, it's an important thing that, you know, I, I know I struggle with and I know a lot of people out there do. And certainly this pandemic hasn't helped. In fact, it's probably made things worse uh, for a lot of people struggling with things like anxiety and depression. Uh, and, you know, seeing a really, uh, inventive, creative talent sort of share their stories and be vulnerable and yeah. be real. And, you know, it's, it's kind of, a it's comforting. <laughs> yeah. No, I, people would ask me, do you, isn't that too depressing? Don't you get too, too depressed no. watching these movies? But to Some me, of them are life yeah, they actually... To me, they make me feel connected and they make me feel better a lot of times because people who have struggled with depression or suicidal thoughts or actions and and recovered from them. And to me, that's inspiring and it gives me hope. (laughs) So, yeah. And, you know, thank you so much for the mention. Um, I to kind of like bring it back to you. I would say you asked me what some of my favorite mental health movies are. 
And I would say some of the more mainstream ones that people would actually know I've, are the ones I've written about for your website. Oh, uh, yeah. So you have some very insightful reviews. But one of them would be Melancholia, uh, the Lars von Trier film. Do you know how upset I am that they just played the Cisco <laughs> Center for one night? It was oh, the really? night that I worked and I couldn't go. And I was just like, oh, I'd kill to see it on the big screen again. Yeah, yeah, I did see I did see it on the big screen a couple times when it came out. But yeah, it, I, everything about it when I revisited it, uh, uh, the performances, it's it, it's visually stunning. It's it's a really pro- probably one of the best portrayals I've seen of uh, of clinical depression, really, uh, with Kirsten Dunst's character in that. And uh, the other one I come back to a lot, and it's funny, I actually talked to in one of the mental filmness interviews with um, one of the directors who has bipolar disorder, and he mentioned it too. He said it's Silver Linings Playbook. He felt like it was was a really good film about it. Really good kind of, you know, Hollywood film. Some of them I, I would mention maybe, you know, some of the film festival ones would be. Uh, less known or hard to find, but those are two of the big ones I think that are really, um, and also mention inside the rain, which was something that, uh, Jim drew my attention to that. I also thought was a great kind of, I don't even know how to describe it. Like dark comedy, maybe about, uh, uh, bipolar disorder, very original, um, written and directed by this young man with bipolar disorder, uh, Aaron Fisher. And I mentioned that because I believe you can see it on Amazon. I know at least you could for a while. It was available there on Amazon Prime and it's really worth seeking out. It's one of those it's it's kind of funny. It doesn't feel too heavy or depressing, <laughs> but I feel like it still also gives a really good window into that by someone who lives with it. You know, so that's that's a really good one. I mean, it's it's interesting you mentioned that because so many like Hollywood portrayals just don't really feel authentic. But those, I, I feel like those are a few that do, and that's what I like about the mental filmness films too. Is they just feel so much more genuine because they're for the most part they're made by people who either live with these conditions or have experienced them, you know, deeply enough to make a film yeah, about it. And personal. they feel very real and yeah. personal. Yeah, so. Yeah, no, for sure. I I know we, I got some pushback a little bit, not from a lot of people, but certainly a small fraction of those who saw Silver Linings Playbook and felt that the message at the end of the movie was, oh, you, you fall in love and everything's fine, you know, and you're not going to really struggle with your issues anymore. And there's always this, I remember when I saw them, it's not a movie about depression per se, but I remember I saw the movie Shop Girl and I didn't like it mainly because... Uh, you know, the, the character makes this choice and I'm sure lots of people do make this choice, but she goes, you know, I'm in love with this great guy. Everything's great. All of a sudden I don't need to take this Prozac anymore. What the hell am I taking it for if I'm happy and in love? And I remember having that response to that character's choice and going, what are you thinking? That's not how it works. (laughs) You know? And I, I think a couple people felt that way about, um, about silver lines playbook is that it's just, uh, like kind of like this idealized, romanticized idea of two people, two very dysfunctional people connecting, and in the end they save each other, right? Uh, you know, I just always curious about when that is portrayed in film. You know, that idea of oh, you fall in love, everything's great. Now you, you know, now you don't have any issues, <laughs> which is not reality. 
I mean, the, I hadn't seen the other film you you mentioned where you, uh, the medication was thrown it's away. It's a small part of the movie. But, <laughs> but, I, but I just not, remember that bugged yeah. me a little. I did not feel that way about the end of Silver Linings Playbook. I mean, they didn't really show what had happened afterward, but... Um, it's funny, I actually saw that movie when I was re- recovering from a divorce and uh, stay in a psych- <laughs> my first stay in a psychiatric ward. So I basically felt like I kind of was that main character. Like, I really spoke sure. to me. And to me, the end, it really gave me hope. Uh, I felt like, and then when his um, father, Robert De Niro, says to him, um, you know, you're kind of holding on to this fantasy or this illusion and you don't know if she ever loved you and she, she doesn't love you now, but there's this person right in front of you who, who really loves you, you know? And I, I, I felt like it was kind of about this, like I was in the same place for a while. I had this fantasy or ideal that I was clinging to that I had to let go of to kind of accept the good and real things that were happening to me. To me, I felt like that was more of the message because I, I think that's a big part too of um, bipolar disorder as I've experienced it is you have your highs and lows and you can really idealize or catastrophize <laughs> things. <laughs> it goes I very more extreme in catastrophizing, both directions. But yeah. yeah, so I felt like it was a good, to me it was a good balance. It was a good kind of realistic, like this is, a, this is going to be a good relationship for you that is more, uh, you know, someone who maybe understands you because they have some of the same uh, problems and it's, it's going to work, it's going to realistically be happy and good for you. I don't know. That's kind of how I read the, the ending message. Yeah, I think I lean more towards that, too, and in, in framing it in a more positive light. I think some people who don't necessarily get better, uh, you know, or at least they have their good days and bad days and struggle and never really maintain stability. Sometimes they, they see a movie and where everything, quote unquote, works out they sort of resent it a little bit like, cause that's not what's going on in their own personal life. You know, I think I always appreciate movies where it's more like a neutral ground as opposed to like happy or totally dour. You know, it's like, it could go that way, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's like at the end of um, Kelly Reichardt's meet cut meeks cutoff. Some people can actually look at it as like, well, the Indian is leading them to their death or, the Indian is actually leading them to water and they're going to be saved. Like you can look at it in either perspective. And sometimes that says something about you as a person. Like, how do you feel about that ending? Uh, and yeah, I think some movies, I mean, there's nothing wrong with a good romantic comedy if it's thoughtful yeah. and well-observed. And I thought that film really captured like his, his high highs and low lows and certainly dealing with, I mean, gosh, what timing for you to see that movie? Yeah, that was so fun. Like, I really felt that movie was speaking to me. And it was just when I was starting to recover and feel a little bit better. Um, and I think I had just started to date someone else for the first. So it just it felt very it, it did. It, it really spoke to me and it felt very authentic to what like I had gone through those ex- exact things and it felt very real. And I, that's what I liked about it. It felt like a romantic comedy, except it was kind of 
you know, one that's a little darker and kind of dealing with these issues. And I feel like to me, that's kind of a happy ending if you're neutral, because yeah, with, with bipolar disorder, you don't, you kind of want to be neutral and you kind of want to be stable. You don't want to be too. (laughs) (laughs) That's what you don't want. You can still be happy that way, but yeah, you don't want too much of an ideal and you don't want to, too much, too much depression. So I felt like it was more, that's how I kind of felt. Like it was more stable and, and that was a good thing. He was a more stable place. And, it, you know, there's no guarantee that forever that there won't be any incidents or anything. But he knew what that felt like. And, yeah. Yeah. To me, that was a happy I think I always, I think I always get mad at characters, <laughs> though, in movies. They're like, yeah, like I mentioned earlier. Oh, I don't need my meds because I think that yeah. even happens in Silver Lane's <laughs> playbook. Like maybe you get to a point where you think you're stable and you're like, well, if I'm stable, then I don't, but the meds are keeping you stable, <laughs> you know? So I don't know, like in my mind, I, I always go, that's kind of an irrational thought to have is that I don't need to be doing the thing that is actually keeping me grounded. Uh, but I guess that just, you know, lots of people struggle with medications and taking them because they either have side effects or whatever. But there's just like even people with ADHD, I'm sure they have trouble remembering to take their meds or they just more or less act a little dismissive towards them after a while because they feel like they're in a better place. Yeah. Um, I recently rewatched uh, girl interrupted and I think that movie definitely has some flaws. I don't, necessarily love Angelina Jolie's performance in it, even though it's it's clearly the more showy, grandiose, histrionic uh, portrayal of, you know, someone in a manic state, and she won the Academy Award for it and all that. I actually think Winona Ryder and especially Brittany Murphy are the stars of that movie. Like, I think what they do and what they bring to those characters is actually more genuine and and vulnerable and real to me than than Angelina Jolie's like arms flailing and you know I'm sure that's what happens when you're in a manic state but hmm. I I it's a movie that I'm like it's it's got good intentions and I think uh, you know the director James Mangold has done a lot of films I've loved especially the film Heavy which keeps coming up and uh, something we should watch sometime by the way <laughs> just because like that's that's the movie that speaks to me very much so. But um, I don't know. Did you see Girl Interrupted? And I have actually never seen that movie. Wow, um. <laughs> I'm surprised. I think Curious. that's. I the weird thing is, is like, it's it takes place, I believe, sometime in the late 50s or the early 60s. I can't oh, remember. Or maybe it's the late 60s. Okay. I can't remember now. But uh, like, they play all this period appropriate music throughout the movie. Uh, and you know, and she even does a cute little rendition on the acoustic guitar of the Petula Clark's downtown at one point. It's really cute. <laughs> uh, but at one point, there's this dizzying montage set to a Wilco song, and you would think like, "Oh, that's great! I would love that, right?" <laughs> why, why is there a Wilco song in the movie that takes place in the late '60s when all the other music and songs have been taking place in the '60s? It doesn't it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit at all. It's kind of it kind of annoys me. That sequence. <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't like that. But yeah, as I say, if all the key is if all the other songs seem kind of like a period, you know, piece, it's gonna it's gonna stand out. Yeah. <laughs> My theory is that Winona Ryder loved Summer Teeth and was just like, 
I got to put a Wilco song in this movie because I think she might have executive produced it or something. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, but, but, you know, it's it's a little long. I think, again, it, it has a really interesting angle on just what women experience uh, with mental health and how they're perceived at that time is, again, we've talked about just, oh, they're hysterical and they need they need drugs and treatment and uh electroshock therapy because they're out of control or whatever. And that's sort of hinted at a little bit there. And, you know, even Winona Ryder's character is, it's questionable as to whether or not how mentally ill she actually is. Mm. Cause she's like, I'm just tired, you know, or yeah. I'm just a little sad. And, you know, she gets essentially committed and, ha- you know, eventually gets better, but it's an interesting movie. I think the Brittany Murphy subplot, is extra extra sad knowing that we've lost her so soon not yeah. to spoil anything but um i think anytime i see her on screen now i get a little melancholy because of losing her at such a young age and she was really talented and really cool <laughs> uh and she starred in a lot of great movies of that era uh and uh did you ever see the adaptation of prozac nation I have never seen that. These are like pretty a couple bad. of the most popular <laughs> movies bad. I think about the subject, and I have not seen them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's got Christina Ricci in the main role, and I was like, I'm disappointed in this movie in the way it, I don't know, diminishes things and makes it all about like the mom is the cause for all of this. Jessica Lang is the mom is the cause for all these issues that she's having. And hmm. I don't know. I don't know if I buy that necessarily. But, uh, you know, those are those are a couple of the ones that I think of in terms of being flawed but interesting to look at. But certainly the ones that you brought up, I really respond to strongly. I mean, Melancholia is still one of my favorite movies. It's I know Lars von Trier at the time was going through severe depression himself and sort of channeled that into the movie. Yeah. I was going to say, what I think what those ones I mentioned all have in common is that they were made by someone who... Either I think Silver Lang's playbook it was someone who who had a was it his son who had bipolar disorder? Yeah, but, but I, he I had, think he David Russell has ex- some sort of issues. <laughs> to, to, be, to be honest, right, that was David Russell. But honestly, I mean, obviously he experienced it. If his son, yeah. it, it touched his life pretty deeply. It was all people who had some really authentic experience with with mental illness tend to surprise make the <laughs> David Russell should have made a movie called about. anger management because clearly he needed it, especially on the set of I heart Huckabees. And oh yeah. He's kind of a dick, but, uh, I think Lars von Trier has those issues oh, with yeah, the yeah. anger management as well. From what well, he was like a uh, pro Nazi or something at the uh, press oh. screening or something. Uh, promoting melancholia because he said something like oh i i can understand the nazis and then kirsten dunce is like "Uh, why did he (laughs) say that that. but uh yeah Uh, and then when he followed that up i think with antichrist that's when i went "Ooh, i don't know i don't know about him Hmm." (laughs) and sort of has gone down this path of kind of i don't want to say extremes but he's made some really heavy films that something like nymphomaniac that i kind of went that's a little too much it's a little too much yeah he's a provocateur i will say though i think he has that's one thing about i mean even with the nazis i guess but he has empathy for uh people who are really you know other people would consider the um the outcasts of society and that's one of his uh 
assets, I think. I mean, he, he could definitely be extreme. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I, I, yeah, it is interesting. <laughs> I mean, there's certainly a lot of other examples we can, you know, come up with, I'm sure, of just I mean, going all the way back to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and just how people perceive, like, oh, they're, they're, they need to be locked up. <laughs> yeah. There's something really wrong with them. Or uh, in the case of a movie that I, th- I think we should watch soon, Altered States, where uh, the protagonist in that film essentially thinks that schizophrenia isn't actually a disorder, that mm-hmm. it is actually just a different way to look at reality, which mm-hmm. I always find interesting. And that's that movie r- <laughs> kind of speaks to me to where I would like write a whole book on it if I could, just it's because it talks about things like that, where... I don't know. Maybe um, it's that, like that line in the Truman Show where we accept the reality with which we're presented. Yeah. And if we're presented something different than what's considered to be the norm, are we mentally ill? <laughs> are we are we the crazy ones, quote unquote? <laughs> I don't use that. I like to use that word that way, but still. What was your first experience with Todd Haynes? You said you watched some of his films like a couple decades ago. Oh, a long time ago. Well, when I was young, I actually went to, you know, early 20s young. (laughs) I went to film school (gasps) at Columbia College. Yeah. So I've always been like a like a movie person. And um, I he was really big, at least then around there people were really into him like i had a professor who showed us poison uh and a lot of people were talking about safe and and really into that and uh so i mean that's when i first kind of encountered him and actually watched his movies i was young that's what i say it's about (laughs) literally it's about 20 years ago were you planning to become a filmmaker that's Um, why you majored in film um you know I did want to make some films and I made a couple short uh, bad <laughs> movies. But Still, that's cool. I my ultimate I, I was thinking I'd become a teacher. That was kind of my ultimate goal is I mean teach either film and I got into writing about film more than making it, but um and then I, I was a tutor there and I was thinking about uh, becoming an English teacher. But yeah, it was just a subject I was really interested in i did want to try i mean i never thought it would be like a career filmmaker and that would be my job i i don't think i could see you making <laughs> but, a great movie to be honest <laughs> but i wanted to study it i wanted to, to kind of dip my toes and make it that was just my big interest at the time you know so um i know a lot yeah. of people who went to columbia but didn't graduate that's what's interesting it's like a lot of people whether interested in the arts in any way, like whether if it's film or music, but they're just like, eh, it's too expensive, and I don't think this is actually what I want to do with my life. Yeah. It's like they all go through that in their 20s, and I certainly did, and to the point where I'm like, I don't even remember what I took at Columbia. That's oh, you went there for a while, too. Yeah, Very briefly, right. very briefly. 
uh, yeah, it was around the time when I relocated to Chicago after going to Purdue for a while because I thought, oh, oh I like English. I like writing. Well, I'll become an English teacher. And I even had one of my uh, professors say, you should become an English teacher. I'm going to have you be a mentor and show people well, you know, how to write and all that stuff. And then things got crazy. And I won't talk about my personal life that much. I talked, about, I talked about my personal life. <laughs> <laughs> well, I certainly will when we get to safe. Because uh, yeah. that, that movie speaks to me. But no, I like I said earlier, uh, Todd Haynes has become one of my favorite directors. And I, I don't... <sighs> I didn't realize that until revisiting a lot of his work. You know, I've always been a huge fan of Safe since it's, like I said, it sort of sums up a lot of my own anxieties in a weird way, having dealt with illnesses and whether they're psychosomatic or not. Uh, you know, that's one of those things where it's like the great mystery of the human body. What is going on in here? Uh, so that movie early on really, really clicked with me. And oddly enough, I think it came out the year where I got that crazy fungus in my system that almost killed me. So, uh, I didn't see it at the time. It took me like at least maybe till maybe around 98 when I first saw safe. And that was my first Todd Haynes experience. I think I rented it because maybe I'd just seen Julian, Julianne Moore in boogie nights. Oh, right. Yeah. And I just wanted to go back and watch more of her work because I'm like, who is Julianne Moore? Oh my Lord. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but yeah, Boogie Nights was a big movie for me, clearly, but, um, I find him to be one of the more audacious and kind of emotionally intelligent and thoughtful directors to where I think even some of his weaker films have something to appreciate about them because he's really interested in the gray area that people and their natures are subjected to, but they have the tendency to repress something that they're feeling you know, um, and a lot of that's due to societal norms or internal struggle. I think you can find that throughout the entirety of his work, including like just this, the disintegration of certain relationships due to conventional uh, expectations of like, this is what life should be, but guess what? It isn't. And he sort of uh, identifies that and asks us to look at things a little bit more deeply and I think a lot of his characters experience alienation because I think he certainly did early on. Yeah. Um, you know, being a, identifying as a gay man and, and queer, he uh, struggled quite a bit. And I think a lot of his films really delve into deconstructing identity to <laughs> such an extent that yeah. it can be dizzying in something like Velvet Goldmine where he's trying to sort of figure out... Uh, who is this David Bowie character, essentially, even though it's a fictional version of that Bowie story, but he's still trying to like grasp at the many layers of a human experience and a human being actually is. But, um, you know, uh, he's exploring the idea of what it means to be authentic, especially when we are faced with inauthenticity <laughs> a lot of yeah. the times in life. But, uh, no, he, he first started out, with um, a degree in art and semiotics. And, you know, even as early on, did you, on that safe Criterion Blu-ray, there is a wild short film that he made in high school on it. Oh, is it the suicide? You know what? I was trying to watch that and I was having some technical issues with my DVD player. That's okay. That's okay. Unfortunately, I didn't get to it in time, but I do really want to watch that. I tried. It's so raw. (laughs) It's so unlike anything he's done. But he made that thing in high school with yeah. other people. 
and it's just really heavy. But it's, it's like sort of, uh, Chantal Ackerman made that film about I don't know if that's what it's actually about, but about suicide when oh, she yeah. was when she was Living in high in school, apartment. right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Interesting how it all ties together sometimes, where like certain filmmakers just yeah start out telling the craziest darkest stories imaginable but that one is uh whew. that's the thing is i felt a lot of emotion going back and watching all of his movies um but uh like the first thing that he sort of became renowned for i believe it won awards at uh, the toronto international film festival is uh superstar the karen carpenter right. story which you can watch in a rather low quality bootleg on YouTube if you want to. I, I I certainly have and again it's pretty heavy yeah. and it's interesting that he tells a story using Barbie dolls <laughs> and yet you feel a lot of emotion for Karen Carpenter because um, I think you experience like this sort of uh, like act of projection and thinking about her life even though it is a Barbie doll. It's almost similar to like when you think of Don Hertzfeld and like how, man, how much emotion you feel yeah. watching stick, stick figures. figures yeah. <laughs> it's kind of wild. Uh, I could see why it sort of put him on the map. But, um, you know, he's got, he definitely has a high, uh, high interest in, in musicians and what they've mm-hmm. gone through. Yeah. So going all the way back to more recently with uh, the Velvet Underground documentary he did. So it's kind of coming full circle we'll see what he does next but okay um very ready to talk about the big one well i mean <laughs> we should mention poison briefly too because you did watch it right yeah you know i rewatched that one i was really surprised by my feelings rewatching these because like i said my professor my one professor showed us that uh, you know, as a good ex- it, it is a good example of a of a art film and uh I remember, but I hadn't really watched it since then, honestly. Uh, I remember it being really kind of artsy and really admiring it and being really impressed by it. And this time, you know, I've seen so many more movies now and it's still, it's really well done. I like how the kind of narrative threads come together, but it was, I don't want to insult it, but it, it, it was like, it seemed a little more campy and kind of like gimmicky than I remembered. I mean, it's obviously, and it kind of like remind me of Guy Madden in a way. Because yeah. of the way it uses tropes, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, like the sci-fi, the the melodramatic sci-fi movie. And I can see the Forbidden Room kind of <laughs> like, yeah, tapping into that same thing where it's like mashing up all these different yeah. genres and stuff. Like kind of using movie genres to, in an exaggerated emotional way, I would say, in much the same way. And it's, yeah. it's not really gimmicky. Like, people call Guy Men gimmicky, and I always defend him. And <laughs> this movies I find very emotional. And this one I did, I did too, you know. And there is that theme of repression, running sexual repression running through all of the stories that, that kind of ties them together. But I just, I guess this time I was much more aware of how kind of, I don't know exactly what, know what the right word is, but it has kind of like taking from tropes and 
um, using the these mechanics of these different kind of movies, like the interview documentary or the the sci-fi movie uh, where someone becomes a monster, or you know, the prison movie to yeah. kind of tell the story. It seemed more. <sighs> I'm trying to think of a way to say that's not bit <laughs> not okay. like stagey, staged or too stylized. Stylized, that's it. That's a good one. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I and it doesn't f- sound too bad. They're stylized. very stylistically, stylized. Yeah, they're stylistically divergent, and they sort of cut back and forth between one another. Whereas more traditionally, like an anthology film, you would have one story complete, and then the second story would start complete that right. third story. You know. But this time he's sort of trying to interweave them together and sort of comment on them as a whole. And again, the you know the the AIDS allegory is there, yeah, and it'll reappear certainly later on. But I believe they were loosely based on the work of Jean Genet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, like I like it. I don't feel a lot of emotion watching it, which is surprising to me because I do feel a lot watching his other work. So it's more of like just an exercise, uh, like an experiment that I think lays the groundwork for better things to come (laughs) from him. You know, I think it's interesting, especially if you're studying Todd Haynes. And I think if you want to see where a lot of his ideas originated, Mm -hmm. it's almost like the blueprints. Yeah. And I think that, you know, every story has some interesting uh, things and elements going on within them, but I also don't get like so enveloped by the stories because mm-hmm. we are cutting back and forth in a way that's, you know, a little little ADHD. But <laughs> at the same time, they are commenting on each other in some ways, and uh, but they also don't they they have no discernible order. I just think that he's interested in inventing certain characters that don't even have an arc. Or they don't necessarily find redemption. They're just left alone and lost inside of themselves or even fly out of a window and (laughs) possibly into heaven or whatever. (laughs) You know, and I think that... It is. It's more experimental. It doesn't really have a plot. It has uh, a thematic link. Yes. Like it's a sexual repression. And uh, I I think you're right. But something I just realized now that we talk about in the, how it's stylized is, and I guess I'll get into that a little more when we talk about those, but that's kind of far from heaven and Carol are totally stylized after, <laughs> you know, those kind of like saturated color melodramas and their mannerisms and everything. Um, for some reason, those, well, I mean, those have more of a traditional narrative or plot, too. I, they were much oh, more sure. absorbing to me. But, yeah, I, I Poison, I, I still got some emotional, I, I still felt moved by parts of it. Because I did feel, like you said, some of these characters, it feels like they don't get any redemption or relief. And they just have to struggle with what society has deemed their immoral, you know, behavior yeah. or sexuality. And that's kind of sad in a way. I mean, it is sad. Uh, but yeah, I did. I, I found it much more experimental maybe because there's no real, uh, you do kind of empathize with these characters, but there's no oh, real yeah. resolution. It's clear or, that yeah. he does. And he, yeah. you know, it's not like he's just creating these genre exercises 
to, uh, you know, just be gimmicky, you know, and just, he's actually, he actually creates real characters that he cares about. And you, you, you definitely care about them. I think it's more just, maybe it's hard to get super invested because there's three different stories and they all don't get the, their equal weight, I guess. And, you know, the, they're certainly interesting to watch. And I certainly appreciate what he's doing here and his themes are very prevalent in all of his work. And I love being able to experience what he, what he has to say here. But in terms of like wowing me, (laughs) that's certainly to come, uh, really quickly, by the way, uh, I had this exact same train set oh, really? in uh, Carol. We're, by the way, people, we're, I got Carol on in the background because I think it's such a gorgeous movie that I wanted to have it on while we're recording. Oh. And I just freeze-framed it to like the exact same train set I had as a kid. I really appreciated that period detail in that movie and just how authentic it, it it's funny like my dad said something about the scene in Mad Men or he would say that's so that tool that Don Draper was using <laughs> on that treehouse is exactly the, <laughs> the yeah. one that I had used like they get, and like, this feels experts. like it gets everything right too yeah it's kind of insane <laughs> <laughs> it's just like that yeah <laughs> I mean you, you, you must consult with amazing production designers and you know er, early on he certainly was was finding his voice and uh i think briefly to talk about the film he made in between poison and safe which was dotty gets spanked i think that's it's a short film that easily could have been a part of poison i did watch that one actually (laughs) on your recommendation yes it reminded me a lot of poison yeah yeah again playing with tropes and expectations of almost like the the <laughs> the sitcom when you think of uh you know it's maybe a lot of people really really responded to I love Lucy. Yeah. <laughs> and I think Todd Haynes <laughs> is not alone in that. He uh said this was very personal for him because he actually got to meet Lucille Ball. Oh. And was kind of overwhelmed. I don't know if he had these exact same fantasies and dreams that he has, you know, that the character in uh, Dottie Gets Spank, a, a young boy, has uh, in regards to, well, it's all, I mean, you can probably get Freudian on this, on this little short film that he made, but I think at the same time, uh, a lot of the queer community really responds to this idea of, I'm experiencing something new and exciting and I don't know if other people are going to like that I'm experiencing these feelings. <laughs> so I'm just sort of going to keep them to myself, locked yeah. away, you know, and bury it in the backyard, which is a really sad ending in a way for this mm-hmm. poor boy, because he's like, I really, I'm really kind of turned on by this. I don't know if it's necessarily sexual at his age, but it's just something that he's feeling and experiencing for the first time that it is exciting for him. You know, it's less about kink and more about curiosity, I think. You, you, you hear the title, Dottie Gets Spanked, and you're just expecting fetish, <laughs> fetish city. You know, just nothing but like, oh boy, this is going to be kinky as fuck. Um, it's not. <laughs> it's actually really sweet and sad. Um, I think that's what Todd Haynes does so well in the majority of his work, is finding that um, sweetness and sadness in feeling something new. And we even get to that with Carol. So... What did you think? 
all about Donnie gets spanked. Well, it's funny how I was, even before I watched that one, it, when I rewatched Poison, it's like, there's elements of this that kind of remind me of Guy Madden. <laughs> and Donnie gets spanked really reminded me. I mean, there was even like a silent film oh, title. Yeah. Oh, point. yeah. And he did the same thing where he's like, you know, rapidly cutting uh you know different images together at one point i mean it really looked like a <laughs> short and even the title like toddy gets spanked and the oh, dream sequences the, yeah are total guy madden yeah i mean that it. i was like i if you had showed that to me and said it was a guy madden movie i would i wouldn't have even questioned it so i thought that was interesting i mean much much more so than poison but I mean, that aside, I, I agree with you. It's kind of a sweet and sad story. And I think that's also probably something um, a lot of, from what I understand, at least um, LGBTQ folks could relate to is kind of like latching onto this entertainment or media yes. as, as your escape, you know, and, and this kind of like test of, of your sexuality. And... Um, I thought it was really interesting how his mother kind of encouraged it. And then later she's like, why don't you watch what your, what your daddy's <laughs> watching? It's like it did kind of catch up with him. How it made him feel more like an outsider for what he liked, you know, and the kids at school yeah. teasing him and everything like that. Like you think the mom's going to yeah. be constantly supportive and it turns out mm, maybe he's really into the show a little too much. I think we should steer him away right. from that, you know. Uh because, you know, it's clear that the dad is very different and not encouraging of his interests. And that's something that I think a lot of people can relate to, whether, you know, you're queer or not. It's like familial support <laughs> in what you want to pursue or what you find interesting or sexy. Uh, I think that's always uh, challenging at that age because, like, he's essentially experiencing like a sexual awakening that he can't fully comprehend yet. Yeah. You know, it's like, exactly. I'm feeling these feelings. What are they? And I think he captures that spirit and that, uh, that age and that fear too, to some degree of like, what is this? What is this? It's different. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, yeah, it's, it's clearly a personal film of his that is again, more experimental, but I think it's, especially if you're, interested in Todd Haynes' entire work, it's almost essential, I think, to some degree, because it it does comment a lot on a lot of the things that he would later tap into. It does seem almost like, that was a good way to put it, almost like a bridge yeah. from Poison into getting a little more personal, getting, like, or identifying this very specific kind of thing I'm going to, to tackle as kind of identity, unraveling your identity, and... Um, I like how he yeah. subverts archetypes a lot and certainly just the idea of even just the title and you're thinking it's going to be one thing and it turns out to be something completely different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know? for sure, yeah. And uh, even his very first short film, The Suicide, which he made in high school, it's t it turns out to be a little different than you'd think in the end. It's kind of a, It's kind of interesting that they both have overbearing mothers a little bit. <laughs> you know, more so the suicide, which is like, yeah, I don't know that uh, that made me feel really uncomfortable, <laughs> but in a way that was like, wow, this is yeah, this is heavy. It's heavy in a in a way that I think very few filmmakers would actually have the uh, courage to tackle. 
Especially that young. Like, in high school, he made that thing. Okay, anyway. <laughs> let's get to the masterpiece. The one that I think is in my top ten favorite movies of all time. <laughs> I've talked about it a lot. I've certainly gone on record in whenever like, I have to talk about favorite films. It's always up there. Um, but it's it's still really challenging to sit through even more now for some reason, I think because of the pandemic <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and how we all yeah. feel a little more isolated. And certainly that lockdown period does feel like the very end of this movie where she's going into her little cocoon, her little igloo <laughs> and, you know, basically isolating herself from the outside world because that's what feels safe to her at that point in time. And when we were going through a lockdown, we were sort of forced to do that more or less. We were, we had to be safe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's a little more emotional, adds another whole other layer. I think there's even been a couple of pieces written about this movie uh early on in the like or well yeah, like mid twenty twenty about how this movie plays differently now. But I wanna know so much about what you think about safe because I've talked about it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanna hear all your the plethora of amazing thoughts you probably have about it. Because I know you you responded to it pretty strongly as well. Oh, no. Yeah. Now, this is one that when I revisited it, I was like, this, how did I not remember all these things (laughs) about this movie? Memory is weird. It was, I I think I was too young to really understand it, honestly. There's so much going on and there's, it's even hard to kind of unpack it all, but... Uh, I, I feel like everything in it, every subtle detail is deliberate and says something. And, but no, what you had said about the, um, the tie-in with feeling the coronavirus, it's fine. I mean, here's something after more of my lived experience. I remember thinking when I saw it, when I was young, like, I think maybe I watched it once or twice, but yeah, it didn't, it never hit me as hard as now, but I just didn't get it. I I thought to myself, oh, that's so weird. Oh, she has this weird disease. That's, you know, and now I'm watching it and I'm thinking like there's constant sounds in the background of like planes and cars and the fumes and the sprays like coming out everywhere. And I'm just like, why aren't all of us like all the time, like, bleeding out of her (laughs) (laughs) and coughing, and you know what I mean? Like, it just seems so normal, so much more normal now, you know? Like, no wonder we're uh, Mother Nature's attacking us. (laughs) Yeah, no, we talk about environmental illness in the movie, but you can can sort of equate that to global warming. Yeah. Uh, A lot of things going on the toxicity of our cities, you know, all that, I think that plays into this movie. Um, but at the same time, like, you know, on a, on a personal level, there was just t- moments in time when doctors couldn't figure out what the hell was going on with me. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Like, what, what's your deal? Is it, is it mental? Is it physical? We can't find anything. The tests are coming back fine. And so when that happens in this movie, I get uh, like, ugh, I start like going oh my this is a little close to home and you know like she practically has a panic attack at the uh, baby shower you know i mean it's more about her breathing but still to me like that's what a panic attack can feel like uh but you know what is like the first thing that happens in this movie like we're introduced to her in that garage and 
she sneezes and yeah. you know, it's like there's a hint of it's something like to first, come. Yeah. <laughs> and even that sex scene, isn't it sort of framed similarly to what happens at the end of Jean Dealman? Like the you know he's on top of her and then suddenly he, <laughs> things take a turn at the end of Jean oh. Dealman too. Uh, yeah, it's it's hard not to think about certain moments in the way this film is framed yeah. so symmetrically. Yeah, that it made me think of um, yeah Jean Dealman and uh, the work of Fassbender a little bit. I know I, I, I'm obviously uh, far from heaven. Uh, is inspired by Cirque, but he also was hugely inspired. Todd Haynes was hugely inspired by Fassbender as well. Okay. But uh, that's a director that I had trouble <laughs> digesting because he's got so many movies. But no, I, th- I, I think we can easily point to like, uh, I think one of the first things people think of when they watch Safe is Kubrick. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I'm not as familiar. I've seen a couple of his films, but it's been a while with, with Fassbinder. That's how you pronounce it. But Fassbinder, Fassbinder, <laughs> I, I know. I can see the Jean Dielman comparison. I mean, it's something we are going to talking about before is how the uh, there's this kind of like really... She's usually shot from far away, from pretty far away. Oh, yeah. And then sometimes they just kind of like hold the, the camera on her for a while while other things are kind of going around around her, behind her. And that's very John Dealman. And I think it kind of serves the same purpose in, in some ways to kind of show her uh, the mundane, kind of like repetitive nature of her uh, homemaker lifestyle i guess um and i think i I mean you could say that she's almost kind of like poisoned by her environment (laughs) in a few different ways like i think in the definitely in the the way that chemical companies and uh have abused you know the earth but also just in her in the very nature of her environment is seems toxic you know she's in this kind of like we could jump all the way ahead to dark waters <laughs> yeah <laughs> this uh you know this i guess it would seem to be an ideal suburban kind of family relationship and uh, has friends on her block and everything but it just seems the way and that's partially i think that's part of the way they do it is through the camera uh, angles and styles it just kind of shows it's like a little like a little off and also there's some funny dialogue but she just I think she's just kind of and I was thinking to myself at one point about the sex scene like well what is really the the purpose of this and I, I, I mean obviously it's like the man is getting all the satisfaction and she's just kind of lying there and almost like being used as a tool or something and yeah, she sort of pats him on the back um, at the end yeah <laughs> Which makes you think of Lost Highway and the sex scene between <laughs> Patricia Arquette and Bill Pullman. Yeah. Where there's like that disconnection between those two characters. It's kind of, oh. But I, that's <laughs> what I was thinking is it's kind of like an early sign of she doesn't seem very connected to her to her own family or to her own life or to her own, uh, you know. She just seems kind of like a product yeah. of her environment or something. I feel like uh, I've said this. Maybe I've even <laughs> written this somewhere, but... I know everybody was like, oh my God, American Beauty is saying so much about suburban life and it's so deep and it won Best Picture. It was an amazing movie. But I think Safe beat (laughs) American Beauty to the punch and just with the couch moment. Yeah. (laughs) You know? It's like, we did not order black. 
<laughs> we know we're black. But then my favorite part is it doesn't go with anything we have. Or yeah. <laughs> why would we order black? That's yeah. how she knows she didn't order. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's some like really, and yeah, that's uh, like darkly humorous dialogue that I never picked up on. If, I think you know now approaching as a little bit more of a sophisticated viewer, just being you know, see more movies, being older, more experienced, and whatever. But yeah, there's some there's some funny lines like that, and I like I was telling you my favorite one is when. The kid uh, asks the father, like, Dad, how do you spell Uzi? When he's, like, working out his paper on, on these like violent games. Just like it sounds. Uzi, I. <laughs> they're laughing out loud. It's like, I never noticed this, this humor before. Does yeah. it have to be so violent? <laughs> in the 80s, there are more and more gangs in the Los Angeles Basin, plus many more stabbings and shootings by AK-47s, Uzis, and MAC-10s killing numerous of innocent people. L.A. was the gang capital of America. Rapes, riots, shooting innocent people, slashing throats, arms and legs being dissected were all common sights in the black ghettos of L.A. Today, black and Chicano gangs are coming into the valleys and mostly white areas more and more. That's what I mean. I mean, uh, there was that uh, piece I sent you, that essay, that sort of comments on this film as being a critique of whiteness. Yeah, yeah. And I I never really thought of it that way until more recently but i mean i at the time i can't remember this might have been yeah this had to have been maybe post la riots and things like that where people were uh, on high alert uh, or at least they were overly sensitive to i mean it's, i think we can say like you know these people are very priv- privileged in, in the way they're living and something on the outside is shaking them up. I don't think we can go as so far to say that like this movie is about racism, but mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> you know, but I think it's like, it's more or less an examination of identity and it's, and how it can ba- basically deteriorate when you don't have a strong sense of self more or less. Yeah. Cause I don't think she does. I think she sort of defines herself by being a housewife and a mom. Yeah, she's very disconnected uh, from her own life, like I was saying. And, like, I think it could be a critique of whiteness just in the way that it is, like, a critique of, you know, privilege and kind of, like, upper-class white society. But, I mean, I think with her sisters, yeah, she just... Just even, like, the way she talks, like, I'm fine, I'm fine. Like, she never seems emotionally invested in anything. And I remember even when she was talking to, I think it was a psychiatrist, uh, and they're asking her question. It's like, oh, I'm a homemaker. Oh, I want to design stuff, though. And, and then she was ta- the weirdest part to me is when she was talking about her son. She said, oh, well, he's not my son. He's my husband's son from like a former, you know, he's my stepson. I was like, that's kind of a weird thing to say. Like, yeah. well, I guess <laughs> like she's being like, honest. But connected. Do people usually say that, though? Uh... He's not my son. <laughs> I don't know. I always I'm, feel like she doesn't feel connected. Yeah, yeah that's an to her family. Point. Even I don't know. I just thought that, that was a funny makes thing me to uncomfortable, say. Yeah. Set, how, that psychiatrist <laughs> is like not even there. He's just like whatever. All right, I'm here. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's like in contrast. I think that doctor actually really cares, but he just can't find anything physically wrong. 
uh, that's a great portrayal of a doctor. Like to me, like that's how doctors really react. Like they actually want to make an effort and figure things out, but when they can't, they get frustrated, and not necessarily at the patient, just at the fact that, oh, you know, all these things are happening, but we actually can't find a physical cause. What could it be? What could it be? And like she is desperate to find out, you know, and she wants to solve the mystery of herself. The question is, is this really real? I mean, she's certainly having reactions like in that amazing sequence when she's getting her hair done. Mm -hmm. She does have a nosebleed after getting all those chemicals poured on her head. So clearly there's something physical manifesting. But is it, you know, certain it, it could very well be like her psychosis or her experience of being disconnected is actually causing her to have an illness of some kind. Yeah. And I know that Todd Haynes was sort of commenting on the way people reacted to the the AIDS epidemic in a way that was often like placing blame on the individual for the way they lived their lives, you know, at the time. And that was like, oh, that's just going to really help things when people get this horrible disease. Oh, now I got to have guilt and shame on top of it. And I think that sort of comes up later in the film involving the... um, like the the the, the cult like new age, uh, uh, what do you call that place? I know it's called Renwood, but I can't remember like what yeah, kind like of a, a retreat. retreat. Yeah, 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 a retreat. Yeah. yeah, that that whole environment really irks me. Just that guy, Ugh. <laughs> when he's doing that like outdoor group therapy session, and he just starts saying, "Who's the cause of?" You know, I just ugh. I get to you. Yeah, it it really does get to me. I mean. There's certain things about, I don't know, the way self-care is <laughs> done and perpetuated in our society that really bothers me, where it is more about blame. And like, you did this to yourself. That's why you're sick. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I didn't think that's, you know, they had mentioned AIDS uh, when they're going to that retreat and other kinds of like environmental illnesses. Uh, and they were, uh, that's a good point about the tie in with like, you made yourself sick and this kind of, you know, guilt and shame, like it's your auto or your immune system yeah. is attacking you, you know, and you let it, you know, um, you want to get the cancer. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Like there's people who think that extreme, you know, and that's, ugh. We, we can't understand why the body decides to attack itself. It just happens. I don't know if there's any necessarily like, eh, certainly no, there's lifestyle choices you can make. <laughs> uh, and certainly, you know, diet and smoking, all those things have been proven to yeah cause some ailments down the road that might affect your lifespan. But at the same time, I don't think we intentionally go out of our way to cause any sort of harm to our bodies. They just sort of decide to do this at this point in time. I think one of the saddest scenes in the movie really is her just sitting on the bed and her not really knowing who she is yeah. or where she is. And that 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 actually moves me to tears in a way because I think a lot of people feel that way sometimes. Like it's you can say that like this movie is also about her experiencing depression and anxiety and panic, but for her it's <laughs> more physical. Yeah, you know, uh- I think you make a good point in, I don't know if there's, 
If you can really point at one thing that's definitely making her sick, I mean, definitely there's chemical reaction. She had a chemical reaction, like when her husband sprays, you know, she gets sick, when she she bleeds, when she gets the perm. She's having some severe chemical reactions. Uh, but she, there's more going on, I think. And then the, it's about more than just that. And I think the fact that uh, she was questioning that kind of thing, she doesn't have a strong identity. And that's something we're kind of, she doesn't seem at all like she has a strong identity. She's almost childlike in yeah. certain ways, just like the way she speaks. And I think that might kind of, yeah, in the way, like I was saying earlier, it seems that she's like, I'm fine. Uh, That's kind of like the way she speaks. Just give me my milk, Fulvia. (laughs) But here's another thing. Yeah, to bring up like the milk and how the doctor said she should cut back on dairy and then she's doing that fruit diet. (laughs) It's like she doesn't really think, she doesn't have a strong sense of identity. And I think that may be feeding into some of the things, some of her life choices that are making her sick. Let's just say it that way. (laughs) She doesn't seem like she's very aware of things around her and that's something her friend says too like well now you have more knowledge about food and chemicals and stuff <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like but that, that friend is almost like i guess that's what i can say because i don't really understand either yeah. like it's almost just like well now you now you, now you understand but i and, and coming from your own experience didn't you experience like chemical sensitivity to a working environment oh yeah well i'm still not sure entirely i had a really bad respiratory infection and i thought it was caused by mold but again now to compare myself to (laughs) to carol white there were a few different things going on i think part of it was my uh mental health as well that kind of probably kicked it into high gear so a lot of times it is a combination i feel like maybe that's part of what what this is about is your mental and your physical health can work against you, you know? Yeah, they play off one each other And they play off each other, yeah, exactly. And you're safe in the way that you... It's kind of like a combination of psychiatry and chemistry. You have to be aware. You have to know yourself. You have to know your uh, triggers. You can't control your environment. You can't control the fact that there's pollutants everywhere, you know. Um, But yeah, that's those things kind of work together. Yeah. It's so true and scary. It's like, oh, I probably have Teflon on my pans and that Teflon's going to be in my blood forever. You know, like these are things we don't even think about half the time, you know, and I think that's it's a scary thought, but you know. It's what we live with, too. But at the same time, I, I do want to highlight the score because uh, Ed Tumney's score is very, like, it's it creates these, like, ambient drones that are a little Brian Eno-esque, but they're also, sound like they could be in a horror movie. Yeah. You know, like, that opening, you mentioned how it connects to my favorite movie, Mulholland Drive. Yeah, Just remind the, me of opening It totally Mulholland does. Drive. <laughs> No. I think it's I have a type. Sort of, yeah, seeing the dark roads kind of coming in front of you through the windshield, and then that just kind of like dark synthesizer, you know? Yeah, kind of music. <laughs> like this could have been made by David Lynch, I think, in a way. You know, yeah. I mean, there's certain moments of weird weirdness, 
But I think if this movie were made today, it would be released by A24 and everybody would be talking about Julianne Moore being nominated, I would think. <laughs> At the time, I don't think people were ready for it. Like This was the mid-90s. Uh, and I, I guess, yeah, independent film had hit, especially after post-Pulp Fiction, but I don't think this made a big splash in the way that I think it should. And if it were to come out today, I think a lot more people would be talking about it, especially in the midst of the pandemic. Because like this uses the disease of the weak movie trope as like this structural device, but then he subverts it and creates this like disturbing portrayal of an existential crisis. Really, yeah. And it's like I don't know who I am. I don't know what I'm doing, and at the same time, she's trying to find a connection, and she thinks she finds him at at, at this retreat. You know, even that woman who says, "Like, look in the mirror." And say, I love you. you right. Why, and what, how does this movie end? That's what she does. Yeah. But well, does she do that because she genuinely feels that that way towards herself? Or is she just aping? No, I don't think so. What that other woman said. Because like even yeah. the speech she has at the end, right? Yeah. Is like kind of a regurgitation of all the other things she's been hearing while at that retreat. I felt like she was doing what she was thought she was supposed to do, which is what she usually did. And, you know, I, another thing I kind of thought about it is it's definitely I feel like this is a theme that runs through most all his movies, too, is about class and kind of like the, the very fact that she could escape to that retreat, mm-hmm. I thought showed privilege. And then the interesting thing is they're talking about that man who was like the leader and how how much money he had and how he lived in the nice big house, you know, and it, I felt like that was kind of about class in like, if you have enough money, you can avoid this stuff or you can avoid the stuff that other people have to learn how to, Ooh, <laughs> how to cope with yeah. or deal. That's a good point. I mean, and their like, house was huge. Oh my God. Their house was huge. <laughs> like only three people. But yeah. And then she moved. Uh, she kept kind of like moving more and more isolated, like isolating herself more and more and more. Um, from the world around her and you know and that's and the whole thing is like well what do you do about the fumes like say oh well i guess i just have to get away from them you know yeah (laughs) her solution is to keep like running further and further and further away from it i know a lot of people who (laughs) go through those phases of getting all these supplements like going to the vitamin store and things like that and there's a moment where she's surrounded by all these bottles of different pills and like taking them at precise moments of the day while listening to like a self-help tape about environmental illness. (laughs) And I'm just like, oh man, that's scary too. Like when you go that deep into something and you just think like, this is the answer. I found it. And then it turns out it isn't the answer. And I don't think she's ever found the answer. You know, like it's, this is not, I mean, Todd Haynes himself sort of said like, I think that the illness is one of the best things to happen to her because it kicks her out of her unconscious state out of her, out of an unexamined life. And she begins to think about things in a completely different way and take some steps towards changing her life. So he frames it in a more positive light than I do (laughs) because I find it really sad and alienating and cold at times, but there's a lot of humanity and warmth and, and empathy for Carol. It's not like he's, I think Kubrick is far more detached from emotion in a lot of his work 
than Todd Haynes is. I think he's actually really in touch with emotion and certainly gives these moments, like we mentioned with her on the bed, like a lot of weight and yeah. feeling behind it. But it's it's an extraordinary work of art. Like I watch it and I'm just kind of like in awe of it the whole time and also feeling a lot and also going, ooh, this kind of happened to me. <laughs> and it's happening to a lot of people and it probably still continues to happen to people who have weird things that happen even just like migraines where the hell did this come from you know like i didn't want a migraine right now what's where did it come from why is it here yeah you know is it have i been around some sort of toxins in the air that have caused it you know and or am i stressed and that's what's causing it yeah you know and you made a good point too that i think um uh, when i got sick that i thought was uh, caused by environmental factors and it still may have been i don't know i think maybe it was but uh i kind of hyper focused on it too and you know i was in a or i ended up being in a manic state so i think i wonder if that didn't well i kind of mentioned this before how the mental and physical go together but kind of like heighten it and, and what you're saying, too, with all those things she's trying and doing and uh, self-help and vitamins, I wonder if she is almost focused. I, I don't want to suggest that she's making herself <laughs> sick. I know that's not... <laughs> not to uh, that but extent. What I'm saying is maybe she, by focusing on it and kind of like making it the center, maybe she's exacerbating some of her symptoms at times. I don't know. But that's something I hadn't really considered yeah it's (laughs) it's a lot to think about like you know in terms of maybe she felt disconnected and now that she's like experiencing this it gives her a sense of i can find a sense of self even if it means like through this illness you know i mean that's kind of why she sees that advertisement on the tv and goes oh that's the answer that's what i need people she can connect to and belong with yeah that's really interesting i think support groups are built out of that you know exactly but it's it's interesting too that i i wouldn't think what todd haynes perspective would be is that she's kind of finding herself because to me it I, I still didn't really feel like she had a strong sense of identity but she did have people she could connect to over something and maybe it meant that makes me question the whole thing. Maybe it was supposed to be more sincere in the end where she said she loved herself or was starting to like discover, like she's starting to discover herself. I don't know. I, to me, it didn't feel that way, but it sounds like maybe he felt that way. It's hard, it's hard to say because again, I don't think she's fully individualized herself. She's a part of this cult. Right. Well, <laughs> I don't want to call it a cult, it is, you know, but it's, community yeah yeah essentially a community of people that i don't think have been brainwashed by this guy i don't think we're going down martha marcy may marlene territory or anything and they like can he has good intentions <laughs> yeah. yeah no they can leave of course right exactly it's 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 always one of those things too like even similarly to when i watch girl interrupted where i watch and i go oh i think that would work for me that would be helpful for me to sort of isolate myself from all the things going on in my life and just focus on me. But I honestly don't know if that's healthier either. (laughs) It it helped you, didn't it? Or was it a little scary and terrifying and, you know, 
it's one of those things where I've always been torn about. Well, not to say like I need it tomorrow or whatever, but one of those things where you go, I could use some time completely away from all the stressors and all the triggers and all the <laughs> things going on in the world to really just try and get myself a little bit more stabilized. Yeah. I mean, I think it can. There's definitely there's definitely kind of pros and pros and cons to it, I think. <laughs> it becomes boring, yeah. it becomes isolating, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's what I worry about. You don't have anything to do after a while and yeah, you miss seeing people and doing things that you can't always do. Yeah, but <laughs> Well, we'll briefly uh I mean, we, I think we both could talk about safe for the whole podcast. Yeah, yeah, it's a very, it's a very rich and multi-layered movie. I, I, I watched it maybe five or six times, and I felt like every that's time a lot. I noticed something new. Yeah, I really got into it because I just felt like it was. I think that's it makes really me too his emotional to watch that much. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I sort of have to space out my viewings of that movie, and maybe it's because some of the things that happen literally happened so it triggers something in yeah, me yeah to some degree uh yeah but, it's very rich i feel like you could see something new every time yeah yeah the the many layers behind this movie make it essential viewing for any cinephile out there i'm sure that if you are listening to this podcast you've probably already seen safe and you are a fan of todd haynes but if you haven't Oh my lord! It's one of the all-time great films, mm-hmm. and I can't wait to watch it again in the near future because I'm, I'm yeah, I will get something new out of it. Whereas Velvet Goldmine, what a weird movie! It's a like this glam pop rock collage that was inspired by like a, like a little bit of Oscar Wilde mixed with the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust. <laughs> And the framing device of Citizen Kane, it's almost like, yeah, I think of when I used to just like get a magazine and put a bunch of pictures together and to form a collage on some poster board, you know, and it doesn't all cohere and it's frustrating at times (laughs) to watch, but I will say it has energy and it's, it's almost like a two hour music video. And maybe that's annoying for some people to experience. Uh, but if you love the music, it's a treat. Because <laughs> And I happen to love the music. A lot of the stuff my dad... My dad played a lot of Bowie and T-Rex and uh, Lou Reed. There's just... And there's like characters that sort of embody... Like the Ewan McGregor character embodies Iggy Pop at one point. Uh, and you could see all of Ewan McGregor. Woof. And there's just a lot of, uh, it's a very horny movie. It's, uh, it embraces a lot of the feelings surrounding bisexuality at a young age and like idolizing people like David Bowie, uh, and certainly what that meant to the queer community then. Uh, but it's, it's like, it's like 24 hour party people. It's got a lot going for it. And I think the highlight of it for me, at least is the music because there's a lot of amazing uh, artists that contributed to this soundtrack, including Shudder to Think. And uh, even Tom York did some vocals for some of the songs, which is pretty incredible. So I don't know. It's not one of my favorite Todd Haynes movies because I think it's kind of messy in a way that gets a little exhausting after a while. But uh, I still think people should check it out. I, it's, it's overindulgent to some extent. 
and sort of like winks at other things that Todd Haynes has done in the past. Like there's even a little moment where he does some reenactment with Barbie dolls again. <laughs> so it's, but it's like, again, like a pinata and maybe some of the candy is delicious and some of the candy you just give away and say, here, you can have this candy that I don't really care for. But I don't know. It's weird too that like David Bowie, uh, the original script, he's he was kind of dismissed it and went, nah, I'm not I'm not going to sign off on this. So you got to do something else. And Todd Haynes had to basically rewrite the entire movie and sort of make it even more fictionalized. But it's a weird mess. Did you ever see it? I did a long time ago, um, and I don't remember that much about it, other than I felt like it was really kind of sensory overload. <laughs> it I is. Do. It is sensory overload. It is definitely that. I do like that kind of music, um, and I, I do kind of want to rewatch it. Um, to be honest with you, I start watching I'm Not There, and yeah, I'm not, I don't know that much about Bob Dylan, and I felt like it was kind of going way over my head, and I was like, if I have, like, for this movie, I would probably have to do a lot of research. <laughs> it's it's I intimidating. Don't, I don't really get it. That's a movie I should just do a whole separate show on with a Bob Dylan expert. (laughs) Because I'm sort of glossing over that one, too. And I feel bad because I think it's actually got some great shit in that movie. (laughs) Oh, and then the tie in there is that I didn't I I, therefore I kind of decided to exclude the the movie or the music movies that he did and let you well they're also very talk different about them since you're the music yeah and they do seem very different as well yeah so like you can find thematic <laughs> and even just the way he tells the stories of safe carol and far from heaven like they all sort of connect in some ways mm. but yeah velvet goldmine and i'm not there are kind of outliers in these weird mashup blender type approaches to telling a story like I even think, it I'm not there similar to Poison because it like keeps cutting to different stories mm, throughout the entire yeah. movie. Well, only this time it's like seven stories, so it's hard to like follow unless maybe you know the Bob Dylan mythology. I yeah, think. Yeah. So that's why I'm like, <clears throat> I know some Bob Dylan experts out there, and I should just talk to them and they can explain to me the brilliance of I'm not there because they, a lot of people love it. And I'm mostly like, huh, that was interesting as opposed to like being wowed by it. Uh, but let's talk about far from heaven. Why don't you sort of kick it off? Oh yeah. I love this movie. So, um, I I mean, first of all, this is kind of like the period of style and fashion height that I love, which is like (laughs) early fifties. The color is, I mean, it's visually stunning for sure. The color is beautiful. Uh, and, um, I mean, I feel like there's even kind of some kind of thematic color coordination going on in it too, but I, I, which I saw some of, but not all of it. But I mean, really what it's about other than how pretty it looks, it's, it's a beautiful exploration of, again, kind of like repression of, of, sexuality or romance or whatever and there's her husband who has um who is gay but uh, repressing it and then um uh julianne moore um is uh kind of falls in love i guess with her gardener her uh 
her black gardener, um, which is still pretty much like a huge taboo around this time. Um, yeah, I can't believe people's reactions. I know so it's melodrama, true. but yeah. people's reactions to that. Oh, on my nerves. Oh, yeah. No, it's so I mean, it's it's very true to life from what I understand and the um, of what would happen during that time. And it's also I should mention the um, kind of inspired by the Douglas Sirk, All That Heaven Allows It. I actually watched that again. <gasps> I haven't seen that in a long time. Um, but there are I mean, obviously, it's kind of a different angle, but. Um, that movie was about a relationship that was very taboo in her little society that was based on more a class difference issue, though. But it mm. was uh, the main character and her gardener. She fa- she falls in love with her gardener. And there is some kind of stuff, a couple scenes that are d- directly ripped from that movie. That's... Uh, I mean, he, gave he it does credit. that. He, he pays homage. Uh, one was the branch he hit, and there's probably more that I didn't even notice. Yeah. But he hands her a branch in the same way that the um, the gardener in Far From Heaven hands her a branch and a flowering branch that's kind of a rare, might have even been the same, I don't remember, a rare kind of flower. And then there, there's the whole kind of same scene where she goes away on his truck, you know, which mm-hmm. is very forbidden and that for her to go with a, a lower class gardener because she's part of high society and then the same thing happens where someone sees it and starts gossiping about it to everyone else so um it does kind of follow it it has some really sim- similar themes and um plot but this you know he he does really completely kind of rein- reinvent it to be about race and um and sexuality and it's a really beautiful movie just in every way it's everything about the visuals and the kind of style just the way the characters speak and interact everything it just feels so yeah like a douglas sirk melodrama like completely from just straight out of that time it's so well done oh yeah yeah. i think it's interesting if you did like a a triple feature and heck, even the music box could do this, where they show all that heavens allows, followed up with Ali, fear eats the soul, and then end on far from heaven, because they all sort of play off of one another yeah. in terms of themes, the way they look, and their influence. Like, each film influenced the next. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In a way, and it's really kind of stunning. Like, I can even make a whole podcast about that and sort of compare all three of them together. But... uh yeah, the expressionistic lighting, the production design, uh, it's remarkable the way this film looks. Uh, I think I I think I messaged this to you while I was watching all these movies, is that watching Todd Haynes' movies, especially Far From Heaven and Carol, makes me wish I'd become a cinematographer. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> I just think like they oh, look like paintings. They're, they're beautiful, yeah. I like, I'm kind of in, in awe of the way those films look, but... And and this one at the time, I, when I first saw it, I wasn't as familiar with Cirque, even though I'd heard the name and clearly reviews were citing him as this big influence and everything. But you know, it's 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 all these performances are perfect, and Dennis Quaid is not somebody that I always equated with strong acting. Like I thought he was a fine screen presence and was serviceable, 
but uh, I I think I was a little unprepared for how good he was in this movie. Like, he has some great drunk scenes. Yeah, <laughs> no, he was good, yeah. <laughs> you know, and uh, I think he just played this role perfectly well in a way that surprised me. Whereas, like, Julianne Moore is always amazing, so I expect that. And she's certainly great here in a very different way than she is in Safe. Yeah. She's very more expressive. Totally different. This. Yeah. No, she's a character who's sure of herself in this movie, I would say. Uh, yeah. Quite sure. She's quite able sure. to assert herself. <laughs> bold. Very bold and confident. Yeah. Kind of like the polar opposite. <laughs> yeah. No, but, uh, like, he allows every character to have these little flaws and moments of collapse into uncertainty and, and worry about what are they going to be happy uh, how can they be happy and certainly a Douglas Sirk movie would end on a much happier note mm. whereas this is more sad again like mm-hmm. she's left alone really at the end yeah and I'm not saying like oh it had to have been like they wind up together and live happily ever after either because that's not how all these stories play out but um, yeah, again, a movie that moves me to no end because I'm kind of like uh, amazed too that people were this reactionary to uh, people falling in love with people who were like, "Oh, that's that's so wrong. Oh, you shouldn't yeah. do that. You can't be that way." In fact, like I still can't get over the fact that they were treating homosexuality as. A oh, as illness. a sickness. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm going to Tying back to safe in a way. He goes yeah. to visit a doctor to try to get cured. <laughs> I guess he's considered like a therapist, right? A psychologist. Yeah, or a psychologist. So. Yeah. I, uh, that was something really interesting that I had kind of wanted to bring up that's uh, around that time that was still kind of considered like an abnormality or b- disease that you could. And he kind of brings it up that way when his. Uh, wife first finds out about it like oh i i have this uh i had problems and they're happening again and um you know like it's like it's a mental illness and um i mean it's interesting i was thinking about the the ending is very sad but uh i feel like the the, he they kind of both realize their identity the um, gay couple seems like they're going to end up together. Her her husband is going to end up with his uh, lover. Um, and for her and uh, Raymond, the gardener, um, it seems like they kind of had a they they had a connection. They didn't get to be together, but she, I feel like she kind of had an awakening about you know how like she wants to help the naacp and stuff and, oh yeah um, no, that's, that's you know realize how uh i don't think she really saw before how how bad that that discrimination was until it really touched her life so i feel like they kind of you know they touched each other's lives in a way so it's, it's more bittersweet ending. it's bittersweet yeah. yeah it's like they had this connection that was great for them at the time but they also realize the reality that they're living in. Yeah. And plus, look what happened to the daughter, you know, as a result of them having this connection. Like, her safety was threatened just simply by sheer outright hatred and bigotry and racism of that period of people just, like, uh, attacking one another, you know? Yeah. And 
uh, you know, he's, he has to do what's best for his daughter, so that's why he has to move away. So, and I don't expect her to just like say, "Hey, kids, come on, we're gonna go move with uh, this other gentleman now." And she has to sort of protect her little niche that she's built, and hopefully, she can do better in the world, and she'll she'll move on. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I would think so. Unlike Carol, I'm not as worried. You know? <laughs> with with Carol, okay. I'm wor- still worried about. <laughs> No, yeah, I do. I think it's there's one part, and I feel like that's just the reality of the time, and they both knew that that they couldn't um, any them living together at that point in time was going to just bring hatred and violence from the community, from both the black and the white community. Um, and I mean, even you know, after de- this run like desegregation and everything, it still wasn't accepted or uh but yeah there's this one scene that was really really got to me that i thought was so poignant where they're talking about she goes to him uh to say they can't be friends anymore because everyone in her circle was gossiping and cutting her off and and she didn't want anything to happen to him either and he says well uh do you think or do you blame I forget exactly what it says but he gives this beautiful speech about seeing beyond color and seeing beyond surface and she says uh, Julia Moore she says do you really think that people can see beyond the surface and he says I have no choice Mm. and after he says that she says I wish I could and I felt like that was just so telling. That's like the most telling yeah. dialogue. And he can't see any other way for his life to get better. He has no choice but to believe that eventually people are going to be able to do that. And she can't do that right now because of her, you know, I wish I could. Yeah. I feel like that just kind of sums up the whole movie. No, it does. <laughs> You're right. No, that's that a great point. Her, I hadn't thought about that speech. So, yeah, you I said wish it I had so written down his speech. I, I wish I had written down his speech because so the speech he did, had was so beautiful. Yeah. But a lot yeah. of his movies have moments of a great monologue. I'm thinking of the Tim Robbins <gasps> oh, yeah. moment in Dark Waters, which we'll get to. But just like. Yeah, this sums up the whole movie, but not in a preachy uh, way that would make you roll your eyes. Like, it's actually coming from the character's heart and soul, as opposed to just being like, let me spell out the themes of the movie to you right here and now. And that always bothers me when that's done in the movie, but here it feels genuine and, yeah, sincere and coming from where the characters are at in that moment. And they feel like real human beings. Yeah. You know, you can look at this as a pastiche and go like, oh, this is definitely like just him remaking a Cirque sort of movie. And people have said that, but I actually like get involved in it the way I would watching a Cirque movie and not even think about the fact that like, oh yeah, this is just kind of another, because uh, he's really interested in formulism and sort of commenting on film as this, you know, structural thing that tells a story but he always manages to create real human beings (laughs) that you can see actually existing in the world which i think is a sign of a great storyteller when he doesn't because like people like de palma and i've said this a lot they love movies and they'll tell you in their movies how much they love movies like 
you know, to the point of, let me show you this amazing shot that I just put together or this amazing choice that I just did and have it pay homage to something from the past. And clearly he is paying homage. Like you mentioned, there are literal scenes that he sort of replicates from all that heaven allows into far from heaven. Yeah. But it's still in the end about these people and what they're feeling and experiencing in the world. Yeah. I mean, that's, I felt like he did really well too. I feel like that I've never seen another movie that made you kind of put you in the character's shoes when they were at the art gallery and everyone was staring at them and he was clearly the only, you know, person of color in the room and everyone was staring and kind of whispering. Like, I just felt that. I felt like they, I I could feel the way they were looking at me, talking about me. And then when she went, later he took her to a restaurant that was Ooh, like all yeah. all black. People, now you get to know I how I feel. Yeah, I feel like <laughs> he didn't. I mean, he didn't put it that way. But he's like, here's to being the only one in the room, and you could feel that too. I don't know. I think that's what bad. Haynes I just does. Felt it. As yeah. A, <laughs> as a filmmaker, like he puts us in that uncomfortable position sometimes of like, this is what I feel, and guess what? It's not always pleasant. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like sometimes you're ostracized for who you are. And there's nothing you can do about it. Like, he's he's sort of, at that moment in the bar, kind of like, I want to say, he, I don't I don't know, is he is he kind of being a dick in a way? Like, now you get to feel what I feel every day. But he's so, he's so kind and unassuming at the same no. time that I wouldn't think that, like, that's his, he's got this dark intention to, like, make, make her feel well, I think, bad. no, I don't think that was it. And he did say, like, right away, uh, you know, we can leave if you want, like, after they sat down. But I think she said, like, I forget how she phrased it. Like, I wonder how you feel to be the only person Mm -hmm. in a room. And I think he kind of wanted to, since she was curious about it, kind of a little bit. Not like... It's coming (laughs) from an empathic place. Yeah. Yeah. Like, this is what it's, this is what it feels like, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what a special movie. It, it really is, yeah. You got a lot of nerve I say you are my friend When I was down You just a day I'm not there is a weird wild ride uh, as someone who really likes Bob Dylan but never completely 100% fell in love with everything that he's done like um, I would give Bob Dylan if I was like a, a teacher grading his entire oeuvre <laughs> I would give him like a B B plus whereas like obviously people regard him as an A plus all time great songwriter uh, folk hero, uh, someone who changed the way people perceive folk music and, and look at it as poetry. Whereas most of the time I'm like, I like about, yeah, I'd say about, I could find about 30 Bob Dylan songs. I can make a playlist and enjoy. And there's certain records I actually really like. I really like, um, I really like blonde on blonde and, uh, blood on the tracks, like the kind of ones that everybody knows, <laughs> more or less. Uh, but I never dug deep enough into 
like reading a biography or even seeing the uh, the Scorsese produced documentary about him. So my my knowledge on Dylan is pretty light in terms of like understanding what everything means in this movie. I know he met Woody Guthrie that plays a, a, a vital role in his life and in this film. And he had um, an intense, passionate relationship that I think is depicted between, I want to say Heath Ledger and Charlotte Gainsborough in this movie. That's again, another portrayal of a relationship disintegrating, you know, starting out on high highs and then suddenly hitting a low so he's he's always interested in why that is. He's interested in why people fall apart and what's going on internally. The thing is, is like because Bob Dylan is kind of this enigma, the movie itself is an enigma. Does that make it a great movie? <laughs> because it's reflecting this weird concoction of different versions of a man who never really settled into an identity similar to Carol. Like, but he was like all over the place in terms of like one minute he's just playing acoustic guitars and the next minute he's playing loud electric guitars and betraying his fan base and kind of being a dick. A lot of the time, Bob Dylan was a huge dick <laughs> and this movie sort of captures that. Um, but there's also this kind of interesting, weird storyline with Richard Gere and like a Western kind of a thing. That's sort of paying homage to Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. But really for me, the reason to see this movie is Kate Blanchett as Bob Dylan. Like that any sequence with her, I am in love with. The whole black and white Kate Blanchett moments of her like going into the Warhol era and hanging out with David Cross as Alan Ginsberg. Like I want that movie. I want I want the Kate Blanchett as Bob Dylan and David Cross as Allen Ginsberg movie because that is so entertaining and so fascinating to watch Kate Blanchett play Bob Dylan with her interpretation and her firing on all cylinders. That is the strength of this movie for me. Whereas I think a lot of people who are Dylan enthusiasts probably think this whole movie has a lot to offer. Uh, again, he's like appropriating a lot of different films and film styles. There's a lot of Fellini in this movie, I would say, a lot of Godard. So it's worth seeing as a stylistic exercise again, really. Mm -hmm. That's probably how I would frame it. But, you know, we'll never really know this weird person that Bob Dylan was and continues to be because he was always reinventing himself almost to a fault. And that's what this movie does. <laughs> it like reinvents itself every 10 or 15 minutes or so. And you have to reacclimate yourself to this other story. But for me, it's like, yeah, the highlight is watching Kate Blanchett just act her ass off in this movie in the best way possible. But uh, yeah, you, you don't have a lot of clear memories of this one, right? Not really. I'm sorry. I do remember the one that you don't stood have to be out. Sorry. It's okay. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> to me, the most was the Cape Blanchett. And you know what? I'm not a huge Bob Dylan fan. I like some of his songs, but I've never been super into him. And I think that the way she played him was like, as kind of a really irritating character. <laughs> 
think of these really cryptic. Well, he was. And I think, especially at that time, he was kind of a bratty brat. <laughs> yeah, bratty. Yeah. The responses to reporters. He wasn't nice like, to journalists. <laughs> I was like, well, that's why I don't really like him. She just reminded me. <laughs> but I thought, yeah. was, I thought it was nice that he captured. Like, yeah, to me, it seemed like him capturing the different kind of sides of him. Like here he's like this innocent, you know, folk song, working class, standing up for working class. Um, but yeah, there's also kind of like that bratty side to him too. Yeah. <laughs> so it can get a little obnoxious. Yeah. But like even Bob Dylan himself said, like, I think the movie's good, but I don't think Todd Haynes cared if anyone understood it or not. Mm. And mm. I kind of agree with that. Like he didn't really make it accessible. I don't know if that's a bad thing. You know, it's it's like maybe he's really making this for the fans of Bob Dylan. You know, I mean, it's not like a walk the line situation where we learn like his origins and, yeah. you know, it goes from A to B to C in this, you know, narrative structure that we would be able to comprehend. It's more of like a hodgepodge. <laughs> well, do you think to me it, that almost seems like the nature of Bob Dylan? Like he yeah. had so many different personalities and you can't really nail one down and you can't really exactly describe or understand him and he kind of is an enigma and he has different origin stories and he has different you know maybe that's the whole point yeah, I, I wish know. I found the whole movie as engaging yeah. as that idea like <laughs> you can't understand you can't pin him down or understand him really like Velvet Goldmine is the glam rock version of what he does with the folk music and I'm not there you know and I I should really respond to both movies because of my love of music. But yet at the same time, the way he tells these stories is very challenging mm -hmm. because your mind is not attuned to the way he's telling these stories. And certainly something like Carol, which we'll talk about next is very streamlined, very simple, very straightforward. And just talking about uh, what it's like to feel intense passion towards somebody and maybe it won't come into fruition, you know, especially again, because of the era that we're in, mm -hmm. similar to Far From Heaven, it wasn't very accepted at the time to, you know, have a lesbian relationship. And uh, Kate Blanchett's character in that uh, experiences, again, a lot of alienation within her own marriage because she clearly has had an affair early on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And is feeling desire for somebody else now, played by Rooney Mara. And this whole movie, to me, is like, man, it's just like desire incarnate, but done in a very subtle way. Mm. It's very introverted, probably because Rooney Mara's character is kind of shy and introverted. She doesn't say a whole lot at times. You know, even... Her, even Carol at one point even says that, how many times a day do I have to ask you what's on your mind? You know? <laughs> So, yeah, when when we first did Tom Haynes, Carol hadn't come out yet. But I would say within the last few years or so, I caught up with David Lean's Brief Encounter, which is something I really think everybody should see. It's one of the all-time great sort of uh, love stories that doesn't necessarily fully become the kind of happy ending love story that you'd expect. It's more like a before sunrise situation where two people have a really strong, intimate connection. And then 
it's not meant to be. Again, similarly like the end of Far From Heaven. But for me, Carol is a lot about the cinematography, which is why I have it on in the background. I think just about every shot is fascinating. Uh, A lot of it has this grainy quality. It makes me think of winter, obviously, because it takes place around Christmas. It's like a perfect movie to watch in the winter season, I think. Uh, But, yeah, no, I mean, when I first saw the movie uh, Paris, Texas, I thought even the gas stations look amazing in this movie. (laughs) Like Everything about that movie, the way every single shot is framed, uh, it it looks like a painting or a, a beautiful photograph. And... I feel that way about Carol. It, like it's the symphony of moments and details. Talked about the train set earlier, and <laughs> there's so many things in this movie. It can just even be, you know, hands or the way people are looking at one another that makes you think of. I've experienced that. Oh yeah, not this exact scenario, but I've experienced these feelings, and this movie captures those feelings. Um, one of my favorite moments is when. Kate Blanchett is driving as they're sort of embarking on their adventure together for the first time. And very faintly, the song you belong to me is playing on the radio, but it's kind of, it's barely identifiable. And to me, like that drive and the way it's shot, the way it's framed, um, it makes me think of that's what memory feels like. And the way these two people are connecting, but it also can't fully, it's not, fully meant to be at the same time uh so yeah (laughs) carol you love it yes oh i loved it yeah between this and the um far from heaven they both have such style and beauty and you know capture seem to really capture their uh their time period just so beautifully with so much detail and yeah beautiful cinematography and again it's kind of like a melodrama it seems like it's kind of um, doing that, that, that kind of old fashioned melodrama was like really colorful, really kind of sad. Um, I thought, uh, yeah, I thought the, um, difference between them was really interesting because she is, there seems to be an age difference as well as, you know, experience and, and class again. Oh yeah, that's true. And, um. You know, Carol is a very kind of sophisticated, savvy woman. And Therese, she says, she even says a couple times, like, I don't really, she doesn't feel like she knows herself that well. And she says, like, so, yeah, I didn't think about that possibly and like the link to uh, safe. But yeah, that's true. But she doesn't, and she says, like, I don't know what to order for lunch, and she orders the same thing Carol orders. (laughs) I've done that. Yeah. (laughs) But I wonder if that's the whole, like, this is kind of her awakening and, you know, uh, uh, trying to understand herself more and and what she wants and that she uh, is intrigued with and wants to be with this woman and not um, the young man she was uh, with and then it kind of comes out in her photography too. She said she doesn't really know what she wants to take pictures of. And then she takes these beautiful pictures of Carol. Like she found her inspiration or her subject. Aww. So it's kind of, <laughs> it's weird. I'm not a big Rooney Mara fan yeah. in general, but I love her in this maybe because she's underplaying things and it is more about 
that look of longing as we're looking at yeah. the screen right now. Her looks are amazing. Yeah. 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 Like, you know, you just <laughs> feel her stares. sadness in the face. Um, but yeah, and it's, I think she was even nominated for it too. And that's one of the few times where I'm like, oh, I guess Rooney Mar is a pretty great actress after all. Uh, kind of dismissed her, even in something like The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I'm like, oh, God, stop. You're trying too hard. Um, but forgot to mention, it's based on a Patricia Highsmith uh, novel. Oh, that's right. The Price yeah. of Salt. Yeah. Um, so it's like, yeah, definitely adapting that framework mixed with David Lean's Brief Encounter. Certainly the way the film opens and the way it ends, it's again very open-ended. Will they wind up together? <laughs> I think so. I don't know. That was actually a much happier ending than I was expecting it to be. It does seem like they um. might, yeah, end up together. And I think that was the intention um. of the screenwriters to sort of hint that there's hope. <laughs> I know, at the end of like this it, one, it was kind of a fake out because in the beginning they made you think that she was wistfully looking at her and driving away, like, "Oh, we'll never." Or, uh, I remember her, and oh, she's the one who got away, or whatever. But then in the actual ending, they went back to that scene, and she went back after driving yeah. away. She went back to her, and she seemed like she wanted to connect with her. So I felt like it was kind of, it was interesting because in the beginning uh, that, and he kind of got the sense that was the ending. It seemed like she was walking away and leaving her forever. And then the ending kind of flashed back to that and then took it in a more optimistic direction. I don't know. Yeah. I thought it was, to me, I, I felt like it strongly implied that they were going to live together. I but maybe I was just being optimistic. <laughs> I think so. I actually think that even though it's, I guess, portrayed as ambiguous, it's leaning more towards uh, her decide making a decision that she actually wants to be with her right. in the end. You know, yeah. and I think that's not something we're used to in the world of Todd Haynes. But <laughs> I think it's really powerful, and I think the you know just. Even just like little green hues here and certain, just the the way certain, like I just kind of watch, watch it and go like the, the color choices, similar to yeah, Far From Heaven, really, really uh, capture like longing and desire in different ways. And it's never like exploitive. Like I think that's the interesting thing that, you know, too, is like he's really compassionate towards women and could be even considered a feminist filmmaker despite being a, a, a white male. <laughs> you know, and I obviously it could stem from the fact that, you know, he is a gay man, but he seems to really understand women in ways that I think are pretty, I mean, there's a reason why women want to work with him, <laughs> you know, because you look at, you look at Carol, you look at far from heaven, you look from, you look at safe and he's not looking at them or leering in a way that, you know, certainly now, we've come to realize that a lot of directors are kind of gross uh, in the way they portray women or, you know, focus on certain parts of the body. And I think that partially has to do with that documentary I watched um, called brainwashed where I was just like, Ooh, yeah, that's interesting. I never thought of it that way before. Whereas Todd Haynes, I don't think he does that. He actually really cares about all the women uh, characters in these really interesting ways. How many did you lose? 190. 190 cows. You tell me, nothing's wrong here. 
It's a small matter for a family friend. Help a guy who needs it. The farmer or you? That's chemicals, I'm telling you. I'm seeing documents I don't understand. They're hiding something. That chemical. What if you drank it? Drank it? It's like saying, what if I swallowed a tire? What if whatever's killing those cows is in the drinking water? Clearly, we both love Carol. (laughs) And uh, it's interesting. The first time I saw Dark Waters... I I wouldn't say I dismissed it. I more or less went, well, that was kind of like Todd Haynes doing a courtroom drama slash paranoia thriller of some kind where it's more like a whistleblower movie, you know, where, mm-hmm. yeah, he sort of tells the story very straightforward and I didn't see a lot of Todd Haynes in the, in, in the movie per se. However, <laughs> when you watch a bunch of Todd Haynes movies together in a row, I think you do pick on certain connections even if he's telling a more conventional story, a true story, a very important and amazing true story about someone I would consider to be a hero for what he's doing and continues to do. So why don't you talk about it? Because you're in law school. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I like to mention that all the time to impress people. But yeah, no, it's... (laughs) I think it's Um, impressive. I mean, it's funny because I consider... I guess what I'll say... What I think about it now is um, it does, it seems more kind of like a made-for-TV courtroom drama or whatever, but the very beginning starts with, you know, chemicals being sprayed in the water. It's like a horror movie opening. Chemicals. (laughs) chemicals. So there's a very obvious tie-in to safe to me. It almost seems like it takes the abstract horrors of safe and gives them a, na- a name and a face. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like, this is the, the real, evils of corporate the real America. thing. Yes, exactly. Because it's like people, I, I mean, much like safe people are getting sick from environmental factors that they don't know what they are. And I, I thought all the performance is in this were, were fantastic. It's such a great story. It's such a sad story. I mean... Um, it is definitely more conventional than any of those other movies I've seen for sure. But, um, I think he still manages to weave in a lot of his kind of pet themes of class. Um, and it, I mean, the lawyer is being made fun of and excluded sometimes. Why are you from going West after Virginia. that? Why are you helping that farmer? Guy? <laughs> right. Cause he's, he has he's roots. Poor. Who cares yeah, about him? He has poor roots compared to country it's compared to most of his colleagues and then we defend <laughs> corporations here <laughs> right and then there's a class thing there too obviously with one of the biggest companies in the world you know trying to take them on and how they are Fuck dupont <laughs> <laughs> to control the chemicals they put in people's bodies and so i mean it really does it's interesting when you look at it it's Really, even if it's more conventionally told, it has a lot of his themes that he uh, a lot of times kind of hits on. And you're right, like Tim Robbins gives such a great speech. It's like my favorite. It's so inspiring when he's talking about when the other lawyers, again, are kind of like turning against... Um, I guess maybe we should go into the plot Mark, Mark a little Ruffalo, bit. Yeah. <laughs> Mark Ruffalo, the lawyer, is to, is a chemical, was actually like a chemical company defense lawyer, but then he takes on DuPont 
for spraying these chemicals in the water because of his connection to a farmer that his grandmother knew where he grew up in West Virginia. So that kind of gives you some context. But everyone's turning against it. And then Tim Robbins, his boss, you know, says, have you you read the evidence he's collected against DuPont? You know, and this is why America hates lawyers, because (laughs) we're afraid (laughs) to go after these people and hold that we should be holding them to the standard. Hold them accountable. Yeah, exactly. So it's a very inspiring movie. I feel like the real, it's realistic in what would happen. I guess what did happen, it's based on a true story, but it seems very realistic. And he takes on this case, but his health starts to suffer. People from both sides turn against him. His colleagues turn against him. The uh, town in West Virginia, Parkersburg, because they're not doing things fast enough and they're not getting what they think, what they feel they, they should. So it's, yeah, that's another thing. I feel like it's a lot more realistic than I guess a lot of these uh, courtroom stories. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, one thing I, uh, I, you know, I certainly thought of, especially once he's having like a literal physical breakdown, like his, his own personal health is at stake at one point because of all the stress he's enduring. You know, I thought of safe again. <laughs> you yeah. know, he winds up in yeah. getting an MRI and I don't know if it was like a close to a heart attack or a stroke that he had one, one or the other. I can't remember what he had, but it was, you know, devastating for him to go through all of this and put in these kind of out. I mean, God, when you get all those boxes of case files, <laughs> how the hell do you even start? You know, it's like, I, I always thought like, oh, it'd be great to go into archives. I don't know. <laughs> I think that would be too much. I think it'd be too overwhelming to handle all of that. And I mean, obviously it took him years and years and years. Yeah. Uh, it didn't seem like he had any assistance or anybody to help no, him. No, I don't notice that. My only thought is, I was like, how would that be possible? Is that a lot of it referred to the same stuff, you know? And once you found... I don't know. Yeah. I, you know, a thread that was, uh, he thought was important. It was PFOA yeah. or PFOS. <laughs> I can't remember what it is. PFOA. Now. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting how they disguise this, this chemical, call it a different name so they can pass it by the EPA. There's just so much about, about it that's just all the little subtle ways that <laughs> companies will. I think the only critique I have you. is really like, I don't know. It's not, it's not bad, but. Some of the scenes of an exasperated Anne Hathaway oh, yeah. as the wife, I was just kind of like, eh, you probably could have done without some of this and mainly just focused on what he's doing. I mean, obviously, they want to show, like any movie, even something like Zodiac, when obsession just consumes you, that it even affects your home life. Yeah. So yeah. I can understand that. And sort of, I also went, well, it's probably the least interesting part. And it's not to say that, like, you know, Anne Hathaway is bad. It was just. I think I was so wrapped up in what he was doing more than anything that I was more tuning out <laughs> that side of the story. I felt like there wasn't much of that. In fact, I felt toward the end they kind of like inserted almost an obligatory like, oh, his family's mad at him and his boss is like it happened yeah. all in a row and his boss is mad at him. And the- yeah, that's true. <laughs> He That's went to true. the hospital. With kind of like, oh wait, we gotta show, we gotta show this was bad for him in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's clear that 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 character, uh, well, he's a real life dude, <laughs> a real 
uh, hardworking lawyer who continues to fight the good fight is, is, yeah, I mean, we, we hold up a lot of like movie stars and athletes as being what we, what we people we look up to, but yeah. this is somebody we should literally thank if we ever came yeah. across in any capacity because he's changing the world, you know, and certainly made people aware of something like Teflon and the dangers that it's causing and the fact that we all have it in our blood. You know, it's, it's sad and it's scary that giant corporations and these kind of companies are continuing to do evil in the world and we can't really stop them. You know, there's, they're still perpetuating horrible things that we may not even ever know about. And this was just like maybe one fraction of a fraction of something that he uncovered. And thankfully he did because, you know, it's making a difference in a lot of people's lives. That's what's scary to think about is that this, he just scratched the surface there, you know. Oh, I'm sure. Think about what all these big companies who just like are, yeah. Pfizer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, they've already <laughs> yeah. say they've had, have several lawsuits. But I mean, that's the thing, too. When you it shows, too, when you sue one of these companies, you just like it takes forever. And that's like at one point he said it's like million dollar payout for a couple million for this farmer. And they're like, oh, this is two days off the Teflon production. <laughs> <laughs> throw money at it. Throw yeah, money at it. Cares? Make it go away. Like, who knows what all these big, yeah, big pharma, big business doing. Yeah, and the CEOs just want to protect their bottom yeah. line and, <laughs> you know, continue to get richer and richer and richer. And there's nothing we can do to stop them outside of, you know, yeah, there are hardworking lawyers out there who are trying to do good in the world and not make it all about themselves and accruing financial gain. It's really about helping people in need. And he does that here. And it's certainly, it's it's sad that the, you know, in real life, the farmer passed away before he could actually see that, mm, you know, right. that he actually made a difference by bringing this, this, this whole situation to him. Uh, and certainly it's, you know, God, those poor cows, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just <laughs> terrible what's happening to the environment and, and people, they don't have awareness about it. I mean, there's a whole documentary about what, uh, Dupont has done called The Devil We Know that I'm going to check out soon because mm. I'm curious about the just the documentary side of this story. But I think Todd Haynes did a fantastic job. You know, initially I was just like, well, okay, a movie like this has been kind of done before with like a civil action mm-hmm. or something like that where it talks about just the poisoning of water or something, or Aaron Brockovich even to some degree. But this was actually uh, a lot deeper, a lot heavier. And certainly Mark Ruffalo is one of those consistently good actors that you can watch him do anything. And he's great here. And it's nice to see Tim Robbins come back. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, he was great. Yeah. You're right. Anne Hathaway was a little overwrought. In fact, I I felt like they could just cut out all the family scenes. I just want to see. I feel that way about a lot of these movies. Yeah. yeah, I guess they had to put it in there to show his, his humanity or whatever. But as I say, I was trying to think of the other kind of links with um, the other movies. And I think it's also about someone who's kind of finds their identity. Like he doesn't really, uh, he works for these chemical companies. But like they say, at one point, he doesn't really even know that much about yeah. <laughs> chemistry and has to ask someone for advice. And I feel like he gets 
he kind of finds something that he's really passionate about, and then he also reconnects with his, like, West Virginia roots. And I feel like that's kind of a theme in all these movies, like someone who just, like, finds something about their identity that they were missing or are going to act on, whether it's their, you know, sexual orientation or becoming more aware of their white privilege or whatever. And I guess, like, safe would be the one exception, I would say to that, but since, like, Todd Haynes even thinks of it that way as her <laughs> finding more of an identity so or being yeah, a part of a community yeah. we're part of a community yeah even though i don't know if it's the right community that's the <laughs> thing it's like is is isolating yourself to that extreme the right thing for her because i think she's just deteriorating like i mean she even seems to be getting skinnier and less healthy yeah to me i didn't see that that's funny i don't see it that way at all that <laughs> the director of the films <laughs> I don't know if that was good for her. Yeah. And I felt like it was kind of fake in the end when she said, I love you. And yeah, yeah, I don't know though. That's really interesting to hear his perspective well, on he, that. He's really exploring like the fluidity of identity and just, you know, to some extent, that's what I think velvet Goldmine was touching upon is just sexuality as being fluid in terms of, yeah, maybe I am kind of attracted to David Bowie. <laughs> Just like maybe he was bisexual, although I think he sort of came out later on and said, nah, I just sort of said that, and that's not really true. (laughs) But, you know, that's the thing. It's like, how how much can you trust in interviews? How much can you believe about a person's life? Uh, And that's certainly true of Bob Dylan. But I think his films sort of celebrate the the sort of protean self, like we're sort of ever-changing, ever-evolving. We're in search of what we want and what we need. And we may not always find it. That's the thing about safe that makes me think about it. It's like, oh, maybe I'll never be fully realized the way I want to be, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And that's sad and scary. But I think that happens in some people's lives where they don't be, they don't don't achieve self-actualization in the way that you would think. And certainly movies want to portray this like romanticized idea of like, oh, this person changes it for the better and things work out. And that's not always the case. And I think that's what Todd Haynes brings to the table is he recognizes the loneliness that people can experience when uh, they're sort of facing an identity crisis. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true as well. I didn't think of that in almost every instance. It's they have to isolate a little bit from some people around them to, and that's, that is very true to life to kind of, you know, solidify their identity a little more yeah and uh he's got a couple of things in the works i heard his next movie stars julianne moore surprise surprise (laughs) and natalie portman i don't know if it's another sort of like forbidden romance story or not uh it might have some commentary on hollywood i'm not 100 percent sure But he's been attached to a Peggy Lee biopic for quite some time. And it's supposed to star Michelle Williams, who is one of my favorites. So if that ever happens, I'll be (laughs) curious. And I know it won't be conventional because that's just not how Todd Haynes approaches a biopic of any kind. Yeah. Uh, And I also highly recommend the Mildred Pierce miniseries, even though we didn't get a chance to uh, catch up with it because it's very strong. And when you have uh, amazing performances from Kate Winslet and Evan Rachel Wood, you're 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 on good terms or you're 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 ready for something great and 
I think that's true of all of Todd Haynes's work, pretty much. That you're going to get something special, uh, even if you don't respond strongly to, uh, you know, the Bob Dylan mythology or something. You're still going to get something out of the experience. So, what are your top three Todd Haynes films? What are your three favorites? Mine are very predictable and simple and easy. Yeah, me too. I mean, you probably know what they are. They're probably the same as yours. I think so. <laughs> Safe, Far From Heaven, and Carol. Mine, <clears throat> pretty much in no, the... I, I think I would flip Far From Heaven and Carol just a little bit. Oh, really? Yeah, no, that's... Yeah, Safe, I'm pretty sure that's Carol, my order, too. Heaven. One, yeah. two, three, yeah. Yeah. I think I just... The way this movie looks, that's why I have it on. <laughs> oh, but Far From Heaven, I mean... Yeah, no, that's true. Far From Heaven oh. looks great, too. <laughs> They're all great. These are great movies. I'm so glad we got to talk yeah. about them together. This was so much fun. Did you have it fun? Was. Oh, I really did. And I loved revisiting these movies. They were all so much better than I remembered. Yeah. Can you, um, <laughs> before we wrap up, can you briefly tell me about the next director you want to cover <laughs> at some point? Because I oh. have no familiarity. I've never seen any movies by this director and you want to cover them possibly later in the year. Yeah. I mean, actually, I uh, compared to how many things they've done, I'm not... They've done a lot, familiar, I think. But uh, my suggestion was Sion Sono, who did Love Exposure, which is really, that's probably one of my favorite modern movies. It's wow. Like four hour long kind of different narrative threads that come together when it's about an um, upskirt photographer. Mm. <laughs> I like photography. It's kind of like a, <laughs> it has kind of like a, celebratory attitude toward perversion, which I really like. But yeah, no, it's more complicated that there's a, a cult. You like cults. <laughs> I do. I do. I love them. There's a zero Join the director's cult. club cult. Yeah, that they, <laughs> that becomes part of the plot too. So, and then part of it's like the escape from the cult. It's, it's a very difficult to describe movie, but I like that one a lot. There's another one you did called Love and Peace that was much kind of like sweeter <laughs> oh, okay. that I really enjoyed and kind of funny um, that I saw at Fantastic Fest. Um, I feel like I've seen a couple, a couple others, but I'm not, they're not, I'm not recalling them at the well, moment, but I do mostly because of love exposure and that you hadn't seen yeah. it. Again, we, we, we <laughs> won't have time to watch an entire filmography. <laughs> like I've sort of yeah. done away with that approach because it's exhausting. Tokyo Tribe. Oh, that's another okay. big one that everyone would tell you to watch, probably, which okay. is about two rival um, gangs in a yeah. Yeah, I think six or musical. seven titles max is really <laughs> yeah. how much I can fit in and feel good about talking about. Yeah. You know, for for most of these now, I don't know what's going to happen. We're going to see. It's uh, it's been a weird time. Uh, trying to you know mentally and physically improve uh things in general in my life and uh i have a lot to thank you uh for that <laughs> for helping and being supportive but also just being a great presence in general and certainly it was great to talk with you about todd haynes and thank you for doing that on this here show it was very <laughs> special thank you yeah, we'll, we'll do it again and stay tuned, everybody, because next month, since it is officially episode 200, I have to bring back Patrick Rapole because he was the original host of the show, co-host of the show and a dear friend of mine. 
And his idea for episode 200 is pretty, pretty remarkable. And uh, he's definitely, well, we're definitely not, we usually do like a birthday special every, every year, but I decided let's just do something cool for episode 200 in April. And I think we're going to watch two movies back to back, possibly stoned. I don't know. That's up for debate right now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But the, the, the tying connection is, he hates one of the movies and I love them and I hate one of the movies and he loves them. So I think if people know my taste in general, you might get an idea of what those films are. I'm not sure if I'm going to spoil them. I think it's nice if people just download the episode and get to experience it cold. <laughs> Cause like, in, uh, normally I would like announce ahead of time and be like, get ready everybody. But maybe I'll make it a surprise and not tell you what they are. I'll tell you off mic, but I won't tell everybody. <laughs> uh, in the meantime, where can people find you, Sharon, especially in regards to your film festival if they want to learn more information? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, thank you so much for, for mentioning that. It's um, The website is uh, mentalfilmness.com. <laughs> it's pretty much exactly what it sounds like, M-E-N-T-A-L-F-I-L-M. N-E-S-S. And then just if you uh, Twitter, it's on Twitter and Facebook, too, if you just put in that same thing. So, um, yeah, that's like the Internet presence. Um, Cool. And, yeah, right now the films are coming in. There's some good ones. And try to line something up for October again. So, yeah. Awesome. (laughs) Everybody, please visit directorsclubpodcast.com. Send me an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, I'm on Letterboxd at uh, Jim Laskowski. That's me. I'm really happy that uh, Sharon was here for this episode. And I'm happy that you all listened to it. So stay tuned till next month when Patrick Rapole returns for an epic two movie. That's going to be long, right? If there are two movies and they're two hours each, that will be a long episode. So get ready, folks, because episode 200 is coming. Thank you again, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care, and goodbye. Goodbye. We did it. Yay! You've got the love, you've got the power, but you just don't understand. Girl, you've been charging by the hour. Show how much I love you